Well, t- tonight, um, what I wanted to start to do, and, and really this idea came from Mike Shelton, um, and I thought it was a great idea, just kind of look at our statement of faith and use it as uh, kind of a teaching tool to remind us what this church believes in and the reasons why we believe in it. In fact, when I go through the candidating process, when I'm you know, sending out my application to churches, you know, that's one of the first things I've got to look at. I've got to look at the statement of faith of that church. And likewise, when your deacons are evaluating me, that's probably one of the first things they're looking at with me, my statement of faith as well, to make sure um, that we line up. Um, because unfortunately, what we find is that there are a lot of churches um, in America that have a statement of faith that, quite frankly, aren't very faithful to the scriptures. Um, and, and the way that you validate that is by looking at that statement of faith. Now, sometimes you've got a church and they've got a nice statement of faith. Everything's good and, and, and honky-dory. And then you hear them preach and you start to realize that what they're preaching doesn't line up with their statement of faith either. Um, so this is a good opportunity for us to take a look at what's in there. I, I would have wanted to run off a bunch of copies. Um, Cindy has been out of the office this week. Um, he, she's on a, on a trip. Um, but if you're if you have a copy, do, do, do all you guys have a copy of the statement of faith or you can go onto the website? There you go. So there's there's booklets or you can go onto the website and you can find it and, and pull it up um, on online and uh, be able to read it from there. Um, I don't know how long this is going to take. We're just going to kind of march through this. Um, we'll look at each of the statements um, that are made here. And quite honestly, as I was looking at the statement of faith, when I evaluated it, um, as I was evaluating WABC, um, I looked at it and I had no complaints. There was nothing here that um, I thought was errant or, or wrong. Um, in, in places, I thought there could be more clarification. There could be more detail. You know, so that probably doesn't come as a surprise to you. I, I like detail. I like kind of expanding things. Um, so this might be uh, eventually an exercise that might turn into in the future, maybe a revised uh, statement of faith that, that doesn't invalidate what we have here, but maybe goes into a little bit more detail and and perhaps it includes um, some other verses. But, you know, this can be an interactive process for us as we go through this and, and read through this. And, and feel free to ask questions. Um, I'm making this very much an open question and answer kind of format. Um, I, I, I'm not um, putting this together as kind of a sermon like I do in the mornings, at least not for um, this series as we go through the statement of faith. So if you look at the statement of faith, the very first thing that uh, we read about has to do with the scriptures. And I appreciate that these scriptures are really the first article, the first item being addressed. Um, you may remember, once again, two weeks ago, my, my sermon was about living on the bedrock of God's word. Um, because everything that we do here at this church, everything that we believe, everything that we portray, um, I believe has to tie back to what we believe from the scriptures. And, and we have to be um, very steadfast and, and not loose about our understanding of it. Um, So as we read this, I'm looking at um, a copy of the um, Statement of Faith, and of the Scriptures, Article 1 says, We believe that the Holy Bible, as originally written, was verbally inspired, infallible, inerrant, the product of spirit-controlled men, and therefore is truth without any admixture of error for its matter. We believe that the Holy Bible is the true center of Christian union, the final authority and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions shall be tried. I think that's um, a pretty good statement. But let's look at this just bit by bit. I mean, we first start off by saying that we believe that the Holy Bible as originally written. Now, who can tell me why that's important to say as originally written? It's been translated. It's, it's been translated, okay. And... 
There, there are, what we have is a, a lot of manuscripts. So right now, when we go to the original Greek and Hebrew, we actually don't have the original, what's called the autographs, the original autographs of scriptures. What we have is a lot of manuscripts, a lot of copies from those, um, those autographs. And um, none of the manuscripts that are out there um, are a perfect representation. Um, but there has been a practice where a lot of the manuscripts are compared. You know, there's, there's actually quite a bit of science that goes into comparing manuscripts with one another. For instance, you might look at, okay, which one was dated earlier than the other. Um, but then you also might look at, okay, um, what kind of um, differences do we see, see between the two? And um, based on our knowledge of how scribes would operate, um, what, what kind of tendency would, would best explain um, some of the differences uh, between those manuscripts. Um, so, yeah, we, there's, there's certainly a, a lot of copies, a lot of manuscripts, um, but I, I can confidently assert that um, the scriptures that we have today, I mean, the manuscripts that we have today are, um, by most scholar est scholarly estimates, um, 99, over 99% uh, factual. And, um, and, and the 1% um, are really minor issues. So, I mean, when you look at it, um, you can kind of compare them and, and start to come to an estimation of, okay, this is probably what he was saying. And very seldomly is there um, a critical key theological doctrine at stake. Um, so we can rest assured that no other work that's ever been written in the history of mankind has ever been maintained with that kind of, um, that kind of care and accuracy. And, and the other thing, too, is that when we think about scribes, Scribes that had the job of copying from the originals or making copies for, for others, um, they treated that with a lot of care, um, with a lot of diligence. You know, in, in fact, um, there are stories of the, the Hebrew scribes, you know, where they, whenever they had to write the name of the Lord, Yahweh, right, they, they would stop, they would wash themselves, they would come back, write the name Yahweh, go back and wash themselves, and then come back and continue once again. Yeah, they got, they got a new pen. So there was extreme care and, uh, and diligence. And so sometimes people think, oh, well, scribes can just write whatever they want. No, that's not what they wanted to do. They, they, were, they took their job very, very seriously. Um, but human errors, you know, crop up. You know, sometimes we, you know, even if we were to copy words from a book, we might accidentally skip a line. We might skip a word. We might double up on a word. We, I, I do that all the time when I'm typing. You know, we might misspell things. And, and so we have um, really an understanding of the kind of errors that scribes tend to make. And so when we start to see differences, we can kind of compare that with the types of errors that we know are common uh, for scribes. And, and there's also um, a tendency also, and this is just an example. You know, sometimes you, for instance, uh, the King James Version, if you compare the King James Version with like some of the more modern, or even the New King James Version and the King James Version, you'll see certain verses where there's actually more rather than less. Um, and and um, a good example is like the, the Lord's Prayer. If you turn to Matthew 6. Uh, Matthew 6, uh, verse 9. The Lord gives us the Lord's Prayer. And uh, really, we call it the Lord's Prayer. This is probably better titled a disciple's prayer, uh, disciples prayer because he, he meant this for the disciples to follow this as a model. But starting in verse 9, the Lord says this, Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then from there you have, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. 
amen. But how many of your translations do you see brackets around that last part? You see that? Yeah, and, and the brackets are there because as you compare the earlier manuscript, when you compare, compare them together, there was a difference. Some manuscripts didn't have that little clause and others did. Well, that clause is easy to trace because that clause traces back to, um, to a, I think, um, a verse in, I want to say Second Chronicles. I don't know the verse off the top of my head, but it traces back to something in Second Chronicles. And, and so when we take a look at two manuscripts and one that has that part added in, the other one that doesn't, um, it's easier to explain that, well, a scribe may have thought that it sounds more complete if we add this in, if we add this little clause in, um, which sounds beautiful. I, I mean, there's certainly nothing wrong with adding that um, to, you know, this model of prayer. Um, but, um, but given that, um, it's probably better explained as an addition rather than a subtraction, because what scribes wouldn't do is they're not going to eliminate. You know, so if, they, if they're copying something, they're not going to say, well, I don't like that, so we're just going to skip it all together. They're more than likely to, for instance, add more detail to make it more clear or to make it uh, sound more complete. So that, that, those are just some examples, and, and this could turn into a huge hour-long discussion by itself, just studying the, the art of doing these things. Um, but what we would affirm is this, yeah, the original autographs as written were completely without error. Um, any questions about that? Now, let me, um, let me give you some, some thoughts as we consider inerrancy. And I know I, I preached about this, and you understand how important it is. Um, but I, I was looking um, before I came in today at um, a book called – it's a systematic theology book by Wayne Grudem. Um, it's a great resource um, if you have it. Wayne Grudem has a very um, easy-to-read style. Um, but he brought out these kinds of points uh, when it came to kind of inerrancy. Um, he said, first, the Bible can be inerrant and still – speak in the ordinary language of everyday speech. Let me read that again. The Bible can be inerrant and still speak in the ordinary language of everyday speech. Some people will say, well, because human language is limited, because human language is limited, that means that God's word is not going to come out perfectly. Um, because human language is limited, we can't know God's word perfectly. It's, it's bound by human language. So we were kind of working with what the best, best that we can get. So, but we, we can't know it for sure because human language would prevent that. Well, we would say no to that um, because God himself is the author of human language, is he not? Um, he's the one that gives us the ability to put together human languages. And while certainly there are a lot of Greek and Hebrew words where, you know, we translate them over and there, you know, we struggle a little bit with what's the right English word to come up with. I believe that through the study, through diligent study, through, um, through prayer, through the work of the Holy Spirit and illumination, um, it's certainly um, not impossible at all to come up with the intended meaning. And in, in, very, in many cases, it's, um, it's, it's quite clear what the intended meaning is. Um, so that, that was um, kind of this, his corollary number one. Number two, he said that the Bible can be inerrant and still include loose or free quotations. The Bible can still be inerrant and include loose or free quotations. You know, today when we read a newspaper article, you know, we know when someone is being quoted, right? We see those quotation marks. And we expect that everything in those quotation marks, inside those quotation marks, are word for word exactly what was being said by the person who was quoted. Other times, we might not see the quotation marks, but we might see the writer kind of paraphrase what was being said. You know, like someone might talk about my sermon this morning and, and just say, yeah, Pastor Ecke gave um, a sermon about um, the greeting from Paul to the, um, to the Ephesians. Um, and and that, that would be true. You know, so he's, he's paraphrasing kind of a summary of um, what I did. Um, but in the New Testament scriptures, there were no quotation marks. 
So, I mean, when you look at the original language, there is no quotation marks. The quotation marks you see sometimes in the English translation is really an, a translation decision to say, okay, we're going to put this in quotes, or sometimes when quoting the Old Testament, you see it in all capital letters. Um, but when going over the original languages, we, we didn't have those quotation marks. And so sometimes you, you look at it and, and you realize that, yeah, they were intentionally quoting word for word. And sometimes you look and, no, they were just paraphrasing um, what was being said. And sometimes it's a mix of the two. Uh, sometimes, and Paul, sometimes you'll get him quoting Old Testament. And, and in one sequence of Old Testament verses, he might be quoting from two or three different Old Testament verses. You know, so we're, we're dealing with that as well. And that's not an issue of inerrancy. Um, so that's uh, Wayne Grudem's point is that the quotations, the, the kind of system we follow today is not the way they followed it back then. But it doesn't mean that inerrancy is compromised uh, because of that. Um, kind of the third point he makes is that it is consistent with inerrancy to have unusual or uncommon grammatical constructions in the Bible. It is consistent with inerrancy to have unusual or uncommon grammatical constructions um, in the Bible. Um, so sometimes, you know, we, we read the Bible and things are phrased a little bit odd. Um, I mean, I think of um, Philippians one twenty one, where um, Paul says to live is Christ, to die is gain. Right. And we think to live is Christ, to die is gain. And, and literally in the Greek, I think it's to live Christ, to die gain. That's what, what it says word for word in the Greek. And you look at that and grammatically, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But when you know the heart of Paul and you understand the point that he's making, you get what he's trying to say. Um, so he doesn't necessarily need to follow grammatical rules that, that, that are perfect in terms of the language that he's using. In fact, sometimes he made up words, right? I mean, um, 2 Timothy 3.16, when we read that all scripture is inspired by God, um, I like the ESV translation because ESV says all scripture is breathed out by God. Did you know that for that word inspired? We use inspired, but, you know, inspired to us, when we think of inspired today, it's kind of like, oh, someone kind of gave me an idea. You know, so someone I, I saw someone say something or someone said something and made me maybe have feel a certain way and gave me certain ideas and I ran off and did it. Well, that's not that's not really how the Bible came to us. So literally, the, the word that Paul used was a word that didn't exist in the Greek. It was a theopneustos, theo meaning God and panustos meaning breathed. So he just put those two words and he slapped them together. He said all scripture, God breathed. You know, so those were words that did not exist. But we see when we put them together, we understand what Paul was trying to get at. And this is an example where, yeah, you may not have had a perfect Greek word that captures what Paul was trying to say. But Paul, right on the spot, was able to just slap two words together. And you get the idea that all of Scripture is from the mouth of God. It's breathed out by God. You know, the same ideas from um, Jesus when he went through the temptation of Satan. Right. I mean, Matthew 4 yeah, if you're still in Matthew 6, you just go back a couple of chapters to Matthew 4. And by the way, this temptation of Christ, uh, think about this. Jesus Christ has just been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Okay, th this, is, this is the start of his ministry. Uh, and, you know, for, for the first th 30 years, I mean, he's, he's mostly been kind of under wraps, undercover. You know, the, his family knew about him. And, uh, and in some cases, you know, as a little kid, he was at the temple and, and the priests were amazed at his knowledge and whatnot. But for the most part, people didn't really know who Jesus was. He starts his ministry. He gets he's baptized by the spirit. They see the spirit coming down on him like like a like a dove. And then right in Matthew 4, 1, we see that then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he fasted 40 days, 40 nights. He then became hungry. Well, Jesus is often referred to as the second Adam. I mean, we see that in Romans 5. 
you know, I, there was the first Adam that, that brought um, death into the world and, and sin and, and all that. And then there's the second Adam that brought reconciliation, you know, that reversed um, what the first Adam did. Jesus is the second Adam. And just as Adam failed um, to, to, to stand against the deceit of the serpent, here Jesus Christ is once again being tempted by the same serpent, by the same entity, by the same Satan who tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. And we see here, I mean, verse from verse 3 onward, the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Um, Jesus, but he answered and said to him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then he continues, verse 5, The devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And by the way, Satan is quoting Scripture to Jesus. He knows Scripture. He knows Scripture better than we know Scripture. All right, but Jesus responds back with principles and, and wisdom that comes from scripture. In verse 7, he says, on the other hand, it is also written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And in verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall not worship, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Well, now, why did I go through that story? To show you that the start of Jesus' ministry, as he's being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, the way he combats it is not to call a legion of angels and destroy Satan. It's not to take Satan and throw him into the pit of fire right there on the spot, though certainly he had the power to do that. He came on a mission. He came to to present himself as a sacrifice for our sins. He came to, to exhibit the, the, the weakness of, of human flesh, but to show us as an example how we can stand against the attacks of Satan. And it's essentially his knowledge of the word of God and to rest upon the word of God. And each time he responds with wisdom from the word of God. And it's only then that, um, that, that Satan goes away. But this all just points back to the fact of just how important the scriptures are for for really how we live our lives, how we live as, as a church. Um, but l let me read over this again. So we believe um, that the Holy Bible, as originally written, was verbally inspired. And, uh, and, and I think I addressed that, the verbally inspired. There, there's some debate. Some people like to say that, no, the, the, the scriptures that we have was really um, um, not word for word, but thought for thought. So in other words, um, God communicated to man through ideas and thoughts, and man kind of took those thoughts and as best as he could translated them into words. Um, now, the problem with that is that when you kind of take this kind of thought-for-thought approach, that means that now there is human weakness involved in translating those thoughts into words. So he took those thoughts, and, and he may not have captured them perfectly, but he did the best he could with, with kind of these thoughts that God gave to him. And no, we would say that, no, it is verbally inspired. It is word for word. We know that every word, what did Jesus say? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, every word. And you will never see anywhere in scripture where Jesus or any of the prophets or the apostles or the disciples ever say anything other than the fact that scripture itself is perfect. You know, so you don't see that kind of compromise. So that, I believe, is the idea behind verbally inspired, but also um, infallible inerrant and the product of spirit-controlled men. Now, what is, what is the meaning of infallible? This one, is, this one caught me a little bit off guard. Um, I, I wouldn't normally describe Scripture as infallible, though certainly it's not wrong. What is infallible? 
Now, inerrant, I would say, is without fault. Inerrant, I would say, is without mistake or without fault. Infallible is saying incapable of mistake or fault. So usually, for instance, the Roman Catholic Church will say that the Pope is their infallible authority. He is incapable of making mistake or, or saying something wrong. And, and they would clarify that. They're, they're, they're saying, okay, it's not in everything that he does, but when he speaks authoritatively about theological matters, he is infallible. Um, so we would say that infallible is incapable of error or mistake, and, and certainly that would be true with Scripture. But being that Scripture is a completed product, you know, I think just saying inerrant um, is, is probably enough in this case. Um, I don't know. Terry, do you have a thought on that? Infallible, inerrant? Um, it, it, all right. If Terry says it sounds good, then it sounds good to me too. All right. And, and the product of spirit-controlled, yeah. We do have um, one problem in that uh, the meaning of words changes over yeah, the years. Yeah, they do. They do. The old King James uh, says, and um, uh, I think it's First Thessalonians, we who are alive and remain will not prevent those who are, are uh, those who have died in Christ. Yeah. And the word prevent uh, is tr uh, better translated, precede, but yeah, it yeah. means something entirely different, <laughs> right. really. Right. And uh, it doesn't mean the Bible is wrong. That's it right. just means that the meaning of the word has changed yeah. over the centuries. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and, and that's true for even Greek and Hebrew words. So, I mean, a lot of people will go to a lexicon, look up um, a certain Greek word, and they'll see all these meanings, but it's really not the meanings at that time, but it might be meanings as they have changed over time. And uh, we might take a meaning that was really intended for an earlier period and, and apply it to a later period when that's, that's, not, that's not the way those words were used. A good example is, um, I remember this quote um, from... Um, and I want to say it was the Queen of England, and, and there was a cathedral being built, and she walked in, and she looked around and said, this is awful. That was actually a compliment. Full of awe. Full of awe. This, this, this is awful, meaning this just fills me with awe. You know, but my goodness, you say that today. Awful. And it's like, it's like wow, that's, you know, I'd be hurt, right, if I'm, I'm the designer of that, uh, of that cathedral. Uh, <clears throat> So that, that's a great example where you can take, take a word and, and, and really within a span of a few hundred years, it goes from being a compliment to being, you know, an insult. And then even today's generation, you know, they'll use the word like bad and sick, and they mean that in a good way. It's like, oh, man, that is sick. <laughs> you know, it's like, what? <laughs> so when someone is really sick, what do you say? <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, um, and even, um, you know, even in the culture today, I mean, you know, and I, I hate to keep bringing these issues back in, but we, we know that, that in the age today around us, LGBTQ is a big issue. Um, they really control the political agenda around us. Um, they, what they say goes. And, and really for us as Christians, for us to quote the Bible and say that homosexuality is a sin, you're going to be labeled with hate speech. So even right there, hate speech has been re redefined. See, hate speech used to be that I, I hate you, I want to hurt you, and this and that. But now hate speech is simply, I don't agree with your lifestyle. You know, or someone will say that you're homophobic. Well, wait a second, wait a second. Technically, homophobia means that you're afraid of them. It's not fear. It's disagreement, right? And so there have been so many times where I've had to respond to people that, and say, disagreement does not equal hate. Okay, disagreement does not equal fear. Disagreement simply means disagreement. Um, but we live in a culture and an age now where universities are filled with what's called safe spaces. You know about these safe spaces, right? 
um, safe spaces, the idea is that when you're in a safe space, no one is allowed to say anything that disagrees with what you believe. That's a safe space. Because if you say something that disagrees with them, then you might be guilty of what's called microaggression. Microaggression is when you say something really... <laughs> the examples of microaggression is absolutely ridiculous. So um, you can go up to someone and ask, oh, what ethnicity are you? And that can be perceived as a microaggression. Like, what does it matter what ethnicity I am? You know? Okay. Yeah, and, and so, so, you know, you're, you're, you're accused of, of microaggression, and they, they have this, this term that where you get triggered, you know, you're triggered from, from a microaggression. It's, it's absolutely astounding some of the things that are happening. I, I've heard stories where um, college students um, now that are staying together in dormitories, I'm kind of going off here, but I apologize. I'll get back to this. But co college students are going to dormitories. They're, they're staying together, and as conflicts come up, they can't even resolve it themselves. They're calling each of their parents to call each other to talk about their conflicts. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's, we're living in a very pampered society where um, people are very easily offended. And, and what's happening is that really free speech is being thrown out the window. I mean, think about this biblically. And, and biblically, iron sharpens iron, right? So, I mean, if I preach from the pulpit and I say something that you don't agree with, you should be able to come up to me and say, Pastor Eki, you said this, but the Bible says this. Help me understand this. You know, and I, I, for me, I can't go into a safe space and say, how dare you, right? <laughs> I mean, I can't get triggered and I, I can't, you know, but what the Bible says is that we need to be open to correction. We need to be able to sit down and talk about it and go through the scriptures. That's why when Bill Shannon was here at the end of the service, you know, he, he said, told this story about um, him and John MacArthur when he first got on staff at Grace Community Church. He said to John MacArthur, if I disagree with anything that you say, is it all right if I come and speak to you? And John said, absolutely. Just make sure you bring your Bible. You know, so, you know, you, you got to be able to speak open and freely about that. So, I mean, I would say even scripturally free speech is important for us as believers to be able to speak and to be able to sharpen one another and to make sure that um, we're, we're understanding things um, correctly. And you, you can go through all kinds of Proverbs that talks about the importance of, um, of that. But even um, 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Timothy 3.16, I mean, Paul says... All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Well, the teaching is pretty straightforward. Teaching is just is just teaching what the what the scriptures um, that the wisdom from the scriptures helping us to understand it. Uh, reproof and, and correction. The idea of of reproof is identifying what's wrong. Okay, going through something and saying that's wrong. You know, and then correction is helping to correct it, saying okay, and this is what we need to replace it with. And then training is really taking the principles and, and what we're learning from, from Scripture and, and how to live it out each and every day. You know, kind of this idea of discipleship, training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So, I mean, the Scriptures are very clear in that we're to use the Scriptures to help kind of, um, you know, test each other and to, to, to purify each other and help each other uh, grow according, according to the truth. Um, yeah, so that's uh, that, that's very very important, and that's uh, that's unfortunately in our society today. That's you know with the free speech going away, they're they're trying to encourage us more and more to teach and to believe what the Bible doesn't teach and believe. You know, it's like that ACR ninety nine that um, that now is encouraging um, counselors and pastors, you know, not to say things against the um, you know the LGBTQ. Uh, movement right now there, there's no penalty as i understand it it's not law so it's not like people can go to jail but this is really the first step 
they're going to continue moving in that direction till they get to the point where they're going to say, no, you can't say that homosexuality is a sin. And, and talk about changing uh, of words. I mean, you know, when you think about the culture and, and how they want to take little children and, and put them through a sex change, right? I mean, instead of honoring the way God has created them, they, they, they do what they call, I think, gender affirmation. So they call it affirmation. But for us, if we want to counsel them and help them see from the word of God who they really are, it's called conversion. Right. So really what we're doing should be called affirmation and what they're doing should be called conversion. But they flip those words and what they're doing, they're calling it affirmation and what they're calling what we do. They're calling that conversion. Um, So but that's just um, that's just the way the. The world operates. But yeah, it is, a very, it is very important to understand that anytime you're reading older books, and this is why the Bible needs to be kind of retranslated um, every few years, because words do change meaning um, in a culture, and we want to make sure that the, the words are, are, um, are, are true to what Scripture had intended according to the words, how we use them. But yeah, whenever we read older works and we see words, it's important for us to look it up, but not just look it up, but look it up and understand how that word was used in that time um, and, and to read it kind of um, in that context. That's, that's something that uh, you, you learn from hermeneutics as well, you know, especially when you're going to the original languages and, and whatnot. Okay, so it is um, infallible, inerrant. It is the product of spirit-controlled men. Okay, now where would we go? Where would we get this spirit-controlled men? What scripture would you go to to prove that it comes from spirit-controlled men? And it's it's actually one of the scriptures listed under underneath. Yeah, Second Peter one, verse Second Peter 1, verse 19, and actually, I, I would love to start in verse 16. If you remember, um, I think it was on uh, Mother's Day, um, I, I preached on the transfiguration of Christ, um, and, and just an awesome experience for those, those um, I, I think it was three apostles that were up there with Jesus, seeing the, seeing the glory of God just shine through his face, right? And um, when you look at chapter 1, verse 16 here in Second Peter, Um, Peter says this, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. I mean, you know, of all the memories that Peter has of his time with Jesus Christ, clearly this stands out as that transfiguration account. Uh, I mean, after he had already made the confession that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, now he's on the mountain and he's seeing the glory of God that used to be behind curtains inside first a tabernacle and, and then a temple. But now it's coming through the face of God. You know, and that's why John in one fourteen would say that that Jesus um, dwelt among us, and the word really is like tabernacled. He he tabernacled amongst us. This idea is that like he was God in a tabernacle, traveling around with us. You know, but so so Peter here he, he's he's recalling this amazing experience. But then when you get to verse nineteen, he says this. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. I mean that experience that he had on the mountain. Um, uh, that transfiguration was pretty awesome. But Peter says, you know what's even more sure than that is the prophetic word. 
We have the prophetic word made more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. So that right there would put to rest any idea that God just communicated thoughts and it was up to man to kind of think through those thoughts and figure out what words to use to best describe them. No, it wasn't a matter of man's own interpretations. It wasn't a matter of man's own wisdom or man's own ideas. And in verse 21, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. That's important too. So everything we have from the scripture, it was not by the effort of mankind. There was never a time where mankind just woke up, where a man woke up and said, you know what, I'm gonna add to scripture today. Let me think, let me think about what to write. All right. I mean, you have times where you go to the days of Moses. Moses wrote the book of the law as he received it from, from God. But he also did record history of Israel as it was happening. And that was considered part of the law. That was considered part of the, really the, the canon. Joshua did the same thing. You'll read through Joshua. Joshua did add to it. Like when, for instance, when Israel agreed to, um, to, to follow the covenant, to recommit themselves to the Mosaic covenant, Joshua wrote it down and added it to the law. You know, so in that sense, they did do that, but no one just wakes up and say, you know what, I'm going to come up with something that I'm going to write into Scripture. No, it's not a matter of human will. But look at the end of verse 21. What is it instead? Rather, it is men moved by what? The Holy Spirit spoke from God. So what we're talking about is we're, we're talking about men guided by the Holy Spirit and speaking from who? God. So you see God at work, you see the Holy Spirit at work using men. Now, what's amazing, though, is that, you know, you, you read through, for instance, um, books and letters written by John, and you read through books and letters written by Paul. You see some very distinct stylistic differences between the two. They don't write the same way. You know, you, you read through John's books. He, he has a lot of emphasis upon love, right? He has a lot of emphasis uh, upon, upon the love of God and what that love looks like. You know, you look at Paul, Paul might put more emphasis upon things like justification. You know, defining what justification is, defining the depravity of man and, and those kinds of things. So you see some very stylistic differences. You see human um, expression in there, and yet um, God uses that human expression and makes sure that they are accurate um, they, they accurately convey what it is he wants to convey to us. You go to the Old Testament, you read Isaiah, and, and Clark, you, you kind of know this. If you read Isaiah, you read Jeremiah, and then if you get into Ezekiel, those are three of the major prophets of the Old Testament. All three of them write very differently from one another. Very, very, very differently from one another. And, and yet very similar time periods with very similar kinds of messages to the people, calling them to repent and then bringing prophecies about the future. Um, and whatnot. So you do see very individualistic human kind of expression, and yet they're guided by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. God would use the, 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 the characteristics, the, the kind of personalities and, and the experiences of men to be able to still communicate his perfect word. And only God can do that. Right? Only God can do that. So that's, um, that's what it means to be the product of spirit-controlled men. Um, that, that the Holy Spirit is involved in, in making sure that these words are written. And there's another good example. Turn with me to uh, Matthew 22. And, and really at the end of Matthew 22, look at uh, Matthew 22, verse uh, 41. 
my very first visit to WABC, I preached on Psalm 110, um, the, 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 the sovereign reign of our Lord from heaven. Um, but Matthew 22, verse 41, Jesus is going to quote from Psalm 110. But look what he says here. Verse 41. So the, the Pharisees have been questioning Jesus. They've been trying to trap him. They've been trying to trick him. They have been unsuccessful. And then verse 41 says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Verse 20, 42, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Well, that's an easy question. They said to him, the son of David. I mean, every Jew who knew their Bible would have known that answer. That's very easy. Um, but then it sets up the second question, the, the real question. Verse 43, he said to them, Then how does David, and very interesting, in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies um, beneath your feet. And verse 45, here's the real question. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? You see, the Pharisees had all along been denying that Jesus Christ could be the son of God, that Jesus Christ could actually be deity. They knew by Jesus claiming to be the son of God, they knew he was making himself to be equal to God. You see that in John 5, 18. Um, but here, he, he's challenging them. He's giving them this challenge, saying, okay, well, if the Christ is supposed to be the son of David, why does David call him Lord? You know, because if you think about your own, um, your own children, your own grandchildren, you don't call them Lord, right? You, you don't pay them honor. You expect them to pay you honor. You know, but here, David is looking forward to a future son of his, and he's referring to him as Lord. And, and the, only, um, the only conclusion that one could draw is that this must have been the son of God. This must have been God himself, and that's the reason why David calls him Lord. But what's interesting is that going back to verse 43, when he first quotes this, he says, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? If you go back to Psalm 110, there's no mention of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say it in the Scripture. It doesn't say it anywhere in the Psalms. And, and here, the, you know, when Jesus asked this question, there's no response from the Jewish leaders. No response, meaning they know everything. You know, they know that the psalm that Jesus is quoting is truly a messianic psalm. They know it's truly written by David. And they know it's truly written by David by the power of the Spirit. They know all those things. They don't dispute any of it. You know, so this just to show you that even in these ordinary conversations going back and forth between Jesus and the Jewish leaders, they understand that the scriptures came forth by the Spirit. You know, even though David himself, you know, there, there's no mention of the Spirit in Psalm 110. Though we know the Spirit did act upon David's life. So we, we know that all Scripture that we have comes forth by the Spirit. But here's the conclusion. Conclusion from the, um, from the faith statement. And therefore, it is truth without any admixture of error for its matter. So all that to say is that the scriptures that we have are all truth, and they're not a mixture of error with truth. Um, there are some, and, and again, I'm going to quote a little bit of um, Grudem. By the way, um, inerrancy, this is the way Wayne Grudem defines inerrancy. He says, inerrancy of scripture means that scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Let me repeat that. The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Um, and uh, I, I read through some of those three truth statements that he put forth with regards to inerrancy, but he mentioned some challenges to inerrancy. For instance, some people will say that the Bible is only authoritative for faith and practice. So in other words, they try to limit it to just the spiritual realm. Well, no, the Bible is authoritative in everything that it speaks about. 
Certainly, it's authoritative with regards to faith and practice. Um, but everything that the Bible addresses is true. And I'll give you an example, Genesis 1.1. I mean, Genesis 1, when we talk about the creation account, right? I mean, the creation account doesn't have to do with really our practice, but really it's establishing how all the heavens and the universe were created. And it says that it was created in six days. Now, they would... People who are naysayers would say, well, no, 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 there's evolution and there's this, there's the Big Bang Theory and all that kinds of stuff. Your scriptures, you know, they'll either say that's poetic language, it's meant to be symbolic, or they'll say, well, you know, we don't need to listen to that because that, that's, you know, it's, it, scripture is really just authoritative for how you practice your faith, you know, and that's it. No, scripture is authoritative in everything that it states. Now, scripture doesn't address everything that we go through in life. It doesn't address every single situation we're going to make in life. You know, if you need to go to a doctor to receive medication, you know, that's something that scripture is not going to address. We, we rely upon the expertise and the skill of, of doctors um, to, be able to, um, to, to be able to treat us um, kind of in that way. Um, but in everything that it does address, everything that it does mention, it certainly is um, authoritative. And then finally, we believe that the Holy Bible um, is the true center of Christian union. The Holy Bible is the true center of Christian union. Um, someone help <coughs> paraphrase to me what that means. The true center of Christian union. What do you guys think? Any ideas? It's the meeting place of Christianity, meeting place of faith, meeting place of hope, meeting place of all things. It's found in the scriptures. It's found in the scriptures? Yeah, I mean, I, I like that. I like that. Um, what, what else? Any other ideas? Is where we come to be taught. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and when we talk about Christian union, what what do we refer? What is Christian union? What do you think Christian union refers to? So it's the center of Christian union. Well, what's Christian union? Okay, the church. But what also what else? Union with Christ. And and what were you going to say, Karen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, um, Ephesians four. Uh, Ephesians 4, and the last time um, I, I was up here for the evening service, I went over this. Um, but Ephesians 4 really goes over um, unity. It, it talks about the, the, the union of uh, believers with one another, but also their union with Christ. And when you go down to verse 11, um, verse, chapter 4, verse 11 in Ephesians, it talks about the gifts that God gave to the church, Jesus Christ specifically, the gifts that Jesus Christ gave to the church. And verse 11, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. So apostles and prophets, we know those positions are no longer in function today. I don't believe that they're functional today. Um, the, the foundation of the church was laid forth by apostles and prophets. But now that the foundation is laid, you know, we have the rest of these positions, which is evangelists pastors and teachers and, and what do they exist for verse 12 they exist for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of christ so they are to equip the saints so that's that's all of us remember i talked this morning about the fact that all of us are saints you know we don't need to have a church body you know validate whether we qualify for sainthood or not um, it's for the equipping of saints for the work of service to build up the body of christ so sometimes we think of the work of service being our own secular jobs 
Well, certainly, you know, your secular jobs is certainly a mission field. That's an opportunity to witness Christ, you know, when you have those kinds of opportunities. Um, but, but here, what it's talking about, it's the building up of the body of Christ itself. You know, you're being equipped to help build each other up. You know, the more each one of you grow individually with regards to your knowledge of the word, the more you're able to help build other people up within the body of Christ. The more you're able to help um, build one another up. And verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge, knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And then verse 14, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are all to grow up in all aspects into him who is head, even Christ. So we see here in these verses that even the function of the church, we, we are to grow, we are, we are to be equipped for our service, to build one another up, we're to grow, to become more like Christ, and the result is that we are no longer to be thrown left and right, to and fro, by what the world believes, um, by all these false doctrines that come into the church. But that implies that there is a truth basis where it's all coming from. And it says that we are to speak the truth with one another in love, and the truth comes from Scripture. You know, so we learn scripture, we use scripture, we, we are edified in scripture, we edify one another in scripture, and we all do it with this attitude of love. And correction should come with an attitude of love. You know, that's one of the things that um, a lot of us are not very good at, myself included, is providing correction for someone else, but doing it in a very kind and, and loving way. You know, it's uh, an area where all of us um, could, could, could use growth, or at least uh, myself for sure. So... We have here, um, we believe the Holy Bible is the true center of Christian union. So the union of Christians with fellow believers, but also the union with the Christian in, in Christ as the head of the church, that we grow to become more like Christ as we grow in our knowledge of the scriptures and, and in our knowledge of the scriptures, how we apply it and, and practice it. Um, there are a lot of people that will say that Theology is not important. The doctrines are not important. Knowing all this stuff is not important. You know, it's just loving one another. Well, okay, I, I, I submit to the idea that we need to love one another. Uh, but you need to love one another the right way. And the scriptures tell us how to love one another the right way. You love one another with truth. You speak the truth to one another in love. And that's, um, that, that's how we do it. And there's, there's, no, there's no such thing as, um, as just growing in Christ without any knowledge uh, of the scriptures. I mean, we're going to see that as we go through Ephesians. Paul is going to go deep into theology, and he's going to show that that theology is not just dry theology. It's not just dead knowledge. It's not um, dull facts and whatnot that we can just throw out the window, but it's meant to actually mean something. Um, Albert Moeller, who's uh, the president of um, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, he, he told this story one time, and I think I've said this before, but he told this story one time where he was on some sort of panel and he's talking about um, the importance of doctrine and theology and there's a man that ended up standing up from the back and he said i don't care about theology all i want is christ and people started to clap their hands right sounds like it sounds like a a, a noble statement that i don't care about all this doctrine i don't care all about all this theology all i want is christ and um, Albert Muller, as he's telling this story, he's kind of biting his tongue, right? I mean, he, he wants to just let loose uh, on this guy, but he just, he, he bites his tongue and, and he just says very calmly, he says, um, sir, do you realize that Christ is not Jesus' last name? Now, what does he mean by that? 
Christ is a title, right? See, it's not Jesus Christ. His last name wasn't Christ. It's Jesus the Christ. Well, what does Christ mean? It means he's the Messiah. Okay, what does Messiah mean? It means he is the promised son of David who is going to come and restore all things. He was the one that was going to bring salvation. In other words, you can't even say Jesus Christ without making a theological statement. So he, he, he's just making the point that, you know what, you, you can't even mention Christ without getting into theology of what Christ means. You know, so, so to say that I just, I just want Christ, but I don't want, you know, all this doctrine of theology is ridiculous. I mean, think about the um, Great Commission, right? Um, go um, and baptize, um, go and make disciples, right, of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then what does he say afterwards? You guys remember? Before that. Say, 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 teaching, teaching, teaching what? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, right? Wow. Even the Great Commission, go make disciples, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them. So the idea of making disciples, of course, you're going to have to bring the gospel. That's the whole idea of baptizing them. You bring the gospel, you make converts, but you not only bring the gospel and make converts and just leave them alone, but you baptize, you make converts, you bring the gospel, you make converts, but you disciple them by teaching them to observe all that Jesus Christ has commanded. And uh, I'm thinking of John 14. Go to John 14. John 14, uh, verse 26. John 14, verse 26. Jesus is talking about the helper um, that he is going to send. And very interesting here, he says... um, Starting in verse 5, says, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. Um, verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will do what? He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Well, if Jesus doesn't care about doctrine and theology, why is it so important to send the Holy Spirit? Why would the Holy Spirit have to come and teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have taught you? Why? Because it's important because you're going to take that. And when you make disciples, you're going to teach others to do the same thing. You're going to teach them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. And I think um, 16, let me see here. 16, verse 13. John 16, verse 13. says this, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the what? Truth. Truth. For he will speak, he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he, he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So once again, the ministry of the Holy Spirit would be to reveal the wisdom of God to the disciples, you know, to to the apostles. And that's what really these statements, I I believe, is what led to the epistles that we have today. You know, so when Paul is able to write letters and say that this is from the Lord, 
this is the this is from the promise that Jesus had given to the disciples, um, even going back to John, that he was going to give wisdom to his followers, that he would help them to remember all things that he taught, so that they may be able to teach others, they may be able to help others to um, observe the commandments that um, that Jesus has provided. Um, so I think we're near the top of the, our hour. Let me see if um, there's anything else here. So. Um, let me read all of this at once. Once again, we believe that the Holy Bible as originally written was verbally inspired, infallible, inerrant, the product of spirit-controlled men, and therefore is truth without any admixture of error for its matter. We believe that the Holy Bible is the true center of Christian union, the final authority and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions shall be tried. And I think um, that last statement is um, very clear and very well stated. This is talking about the authority of Scripture. This is talking about uh, what I said earlier. No matter what I say or anyone else behind the pulpit, we must measure their preaching according to the gold standard of the Word of God. We don't conform the Word of God to what people think. We must conform our thinking to what the Word of God says. Um, so I, I like this statement. I mean, overall, you know, the three pillars that I had mentioned a couple of weeks ago when I talked about the Word of God, one is inerrancy, that it is um, perfect. The other is sufficiency, that is fully sufficient for life and, and godliness. And then the other was authority. I think, um, you, you know, you could really see all three of them here. Um, so these, uh, this is our statement on the scriptures, and I, I think this is a very good statement. There's a couple of verses um, that is added here that we didn't talk about. One from um, Deuteronomy let me see, Deuteronomy 4, 2. Let me check this. Uh, Deuteronomy 4, 2 says, You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Now, it's very significant that the five books of Moses is typically what is considered the law of Moses. That is the law. Those five books lay the foundation for the rest of the Old Testament. You really can't make a whole lot of sense of the rest of the Old Testament without understanding that the first five books of Moses really laid out the law by which Israel was to live. And really, when you get past the law of Moses, certainly you have a lot more commandments throughout Scripture, but none of those commandments are outside of the law of Moses. They, if there's commandments that come, from, come outside of the law of Moses, they're really rooted in the law that was established during the time of Moses. So it's significant that the fifth book, the fifth and final book of Moses says, you shall not add or take away from the words of this law. And so the rest of the books that come after that is really detailing history and detailing how much they obeyed or disobeyed the word of God and the, the, the penalty for that. But we have similar words from the book of Revelation. Um, Revelation 4.11. Is it Revelation? No, I'm sorry, not Revelation 4.11. So uh, Revelation 22. Revelation twenty two eighteen. Right at the towards the back of the Bible. Final chapter and verse eighteen. Says I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. So you have a similar warning written in the book of Revelation. And people will look at that and say, well, that's only applying to the book of Revelation. Well, let's think about this for a moment. Revelation was written by the last remaining apostle 
and it was the last book written, and it was about the last times. All right, so in other words, up to this point, and you, you have now the book of Revelation that's detailing the end times, detailing the, the, the final coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the trials and tribulations that occur and the kingdom that's going to be set up and the eternal state that's going to follow. It's very fitting that at the end of that book, John writes this. It's the last book written by the last remaining apostle about the last times. So you don't need to add or take away from it. And, and I think by, by really implication, all of the rest of the New Testament at this point is complete. Now that's, you know, I might, you, you can accuse me of reading into the white lines a little bit because it doesn't say that explicitly. But I think by implication, you know, once we get to the book of Revelation and he's talking about the end times, I, my conviction, we don't need anything else. We need nothing else from Scripture in order to live the life that God has called us to live. We don't need the Book of Mormon, right? So Mormonism, they've got the Book of Mormon, they've got the Doctrine of Covenants, they've got the Pearl of Great Price. And um, I, I, was, I was talking to one of you guys who have a close friend who's Mormon. And, uh, and you know what? The, the Mormons, people who grew up in the Mormon religion, they spend a lot more time reading those books than they do the perfect Word of God. They, they don't even know the perfect Word of God. You know, you, you can do one reading through the Old Testament, start picking up on a few storylines here and there, and you know more than what the Mormons know about the scriptures itself because they spend more time reading all these extra biblical um, books that have been added on top of it. So that's, um, that's our hour on the scriptures. Any other comments, any questions?